Okay, so we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40, and this is finishing our series. We've been marching along with the saints of the past through Hebrews chapter 11. These are the final verses. Page 1192, um, if you turn there, you'll find Hebrews chapter 11, and you can follow along in these verses. I encourage you to do that. I think it's great to, uh, to have it in front of you and to take a look, and you can Consider that as we uh, unpack this text together. So Hebrews eleven thirty two through 40. This is how it reads. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the word of God. Well, Thanksgiving. Um, You know, some people enjoy that holiday. Some of you may not even necessarily celebrate Thanksgiving. It might be a new holiday for you um, if you've come from another country. Uh, I remember when I was living overseas, there was no such thing as pumpkin pie. We did our best to make the squash pie version of it. It just didn't quite fit. Um, There's all these traditions, and we associate it with all kinds of things, and I I don't know what Thanksgiving was like for you, but if you do at least uh, think about that holiday, you know part of what comes with it is just giving thanks. That's the premise of it, right? You look back and you think about what you're thankful for. And some of you may do things as a family, reflecting on that and kind of putting together a list of of thanks. Um, We certainly did a little bit of that as well. Uh, I was thinking just the past couple of days about some of the things I'm thankful for. And and one of them is the people who have influenced me in my life. And, And not just the people who are alive, but even those who've gone before me. Uh, certainly through the form of books. I enjoy books very much. They feel a lot like friends to me as I I look back and I learn from other people. And I quoted, um, or at least mentioned, about a month ago, Eugene Peterson, who is kind of a pastor to pastors. He he translated the, the message, if you're familiar with that kind of modern version, English, but Really, that's, that's what, not what he's known for, at least in pastoral circles. He was the kind of guy who was just good at writing to pastors and other shepherds and lived a really, really faithful life. Um, he died just a, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the titles of his books, which I've mentioned before, is a, it's just a beautiful summary of the Christian life. A long obedience in the same direction. 
That's the title of the book. The, the book is worth the, t- uh, the, the price of the book is just worth the title. Of course, he's a great writer as well, but I, I ref- I've reflected on that. A long obedience in the same direction. If you want a summary of what it means to walk with Christ, it's a pretty good one. And we get highlights sometimes and, uh, of, of things that are dramatic, but the Christian life is it's kind of ordinary in many respects. I mean, it's just walking, putting one foot in front of the other over the long haul, but you're headed somewhere. There is a destination. And that, I think, makes, makes the, the, the Christian walk, or at least the biblical worldview, different than others. There is a purpose. There is a goal. There's a place that we're headed. But it requires some obedience along the way and just putting one foot in front of the other. And this book of Hebrews that we've been looking at reads a lot like a pep talk. You know, I mean, some of you, are there Michigan fans here? <laughs> Willing to admit it? Oh, yeah, of course. It's been a rough go for you. A lot of Ohio State fans as well. Big rivalry, for those of you who don't know, in college football, Ohio State, Michigan, one of the classic rivalries, and Michigan has not had a lot of success recently. But I'm sure uh, that there was a pep talk in both of those, both those you know, locker rooms beforehand. You know, for Ohio State, it's, come on, we're going to beat them again. We can do it. And for Michigan, it's like, we're going to beat them finally. You know, we can do it. Um, and, 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 you know, coaches specialize. They ought to in pep talks. You're getting your team together. You're pumping them up for the big game. Now go and do it. Win. And that's a, that's a lot of how the book of Hebrews reads, if you've read it from, from, the, from the beginning all the way up early to this passage. I mean, it reads a little bit like a, like a pep talk along the way. And just, just to give you a couple of examples of this, too. In, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, pay careful attention so we don't drift away. You know, you've got a goal. Pay attention to it. You don't want to wander from that goal. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 15, don't harden your heart. There's a danger here. You've got to execute the plan well. And be careful because along the way on this journey, your heart, the central part of who you are, that we referred to at the beginning of the service, it can get hard. It can get jaded. It can get tired and weary. It can stop listening to the things that you're supposed to be listening to. These are people who have said, I'm following in this way. In verse, chapter 3, verse 6, hold on to the courage and the hope, I mean, this is a pep talk. You can do it. Don't let go. And we have in chapter 4, verse 4, be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of God's rest. I mean, watch out. Here's the encouragement. You need the rest that God, be careful you don't fall short of it. Chapter 6, verse 9. We're confident of better things in your case. I like that. You know, he's like, well, don't harden your heart. But, but you know what? You guys got this. I'm not really talking to you, am I? I'm confident that you've got it. And then we could look at more examples. But just right before this chapter 11, we find in 1039, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Come on, go get them. You're not going to fall away. No, we're not going to shrink back. That defense will attack us. But no, you get back up. You're not going to fall away. It's to me, it reads a little bit like a pep talk. I mean, if you read the entire thing, and the reason we need that pep talk is because we get tired. We get weary. You know, we get tired of meeting together. We get tired of talking about this stuff, and life just kind of beats you up sometimes. And you need that encouragement. And so, what the author of Hebrews has done is said, here's a whole chapter full of people 
designed to encourage you in your walk of faith. Look back at those people and be strengthened. Be challenged, yes, but be encouraged as well. Here's a list of people, real people. And we're on the final verses of that journey. And he just, the author just kind of starts summarizing things and whole, starts mentioning names and say, here's all these different people that you can look back on and draw encouragement from and consider what their lives were like. People just like you. So our overarching takeaways from these examples, more specifically the ones that are here, but just in general to take away from this. The first is that we're challenged to have an active faith that makes a difference wherever we are. Now, in my mind, that's a lot of what Hebrews 11 is about as a whole. Certainly, you get more a glimpse of that even in these particular verses because he starts listing what these people have done. They've conquered kingdoms. So there's this kind of military conquest of, of sorts. They've administered justice. They've been at work in, 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 the, in the legal system or wherever they happen to, to, to be, doing what is right. And their moms and their dads, I mean, in verse 35, women receive back their dead. So they're just moms, they're dads, and they're living in all kinds of circumstances. This list covers hundreds and hundreds of years to say, look, these people, although they lived in different times and served in different places, they were all faithful to God in different kinds of ways. And so, so are, you're called to do that. I mean, you've been relocated. Some of you have been dragged from one place here, and here you are in Mason or the surrounding regions. It's not a mistake, even if it feels like it. Sometimes you're here for a reason. Because God has put you exactly where you are. I mean, I love Acts 17, this beautiful image, what I would call theology of place. In Acts chapter 17, it says, you know, people, God has put people exactly where they're supposed to be. It's no mistake, this movement from one place to the next, so that you can reach out and find them all. It's not far away from you. So this is, you're here, but you have a faith. Let's say you have a biblical faith. You're called to be faithful where you are not just in terms of a location, but even an occupation, which may not be what you want, but you're called to be faithful there. The relationships around you, your phase of life, I mean, this is no mistake. And when we read all these people, we get this idea that we're just challenged to have this active faith and to make a difference wherever you are, in the small things as well as in the big too. You know, faith as, as a whole, and this chapter's been doing this, has a couple different elements. One of the things that we're told to do is to remember things from the past. And this whole chapter in Hebrews 11, looking back on other people's lives and reflecting on what they've done. And this is kind of what faith does. Say, how, do, how does faith make a difference for me? How do I apply that? I look back. I consider what God's done. And that's not just in my own life, but looking back generations, this isn't an individual faith that we have. This is a faith built on fathers and mothers from the past. So we cherish and we value what God has done. And we remember, the Bible spends a lot of time remembering. The Exodus event is retold again and again. When, when uh, the Jews would celebrate Passover, remember. And we need to remember because we'll forget. It's part of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Again, we need to remember again and again, over and over. And so we do that. You know, we're, we're getting close to the end of the year, and we have this idea of rhythm in our own lives. I love calendar years in the sense that they give us kind of a start and a stopping point, and some of us can't wait to turn it to the next one, like, ugh, that was a hard year. I can't wait for the new one. 
But you think back and look back at this past calendar year, it's a good time to consider kind of the larger stories of grace. Where's God been at work in this past year? It's easy um, to, to forget those things, and I think there's a great benefit in developing at least the habit of writing down some of the big things in life. It does take a little bit of discipline. You can grab one of these Redeemer journals if, if you don't have anything and just write what is God teaching me. And the, one of the benefits of doing that, if you're disciplined enough, is to look back and reflect on it. We used to take little family videos. You know, you get all these, I, I don't know if it's true for you, Joe and I are idea people. We have a thousand ideas. We execute well on two or three of them and just kind of reinvent new ideas. We're both very, very intuitive. We used to take family videos, and for the first few years of the kids' lives, we'd watch those family videos on New Year's Day. I don't even know where they are anymore, or if we could show them, because we've been around for a while, and they don't have the same media stuff that we did before. They're just tiny little discs and stuff like that, little tapes. These things will go like that, in case you don't know what that is. But part of the design was that to look back, look how our kids have grown. You know what that's like, especially if families get together for Thanksgiving. You haven't seen each other for a couple of years, and all of a sudden they look huge. Like, who is this kid? Who is this person? They're an adult now. And you're living with them. You don't notice any difference. So it's good sometimes to look back and to reflect. And that's part of what faith does. This whole design of Hebrews 11 takes some time to reflect on the lives and the people They've gone before you, but the way God has been at work. And of course, it's not just looking at the past, it's also the present. So faith has a element, but there's a present confidence. I mean, the reason he's writing to these Hebrews is because although those people live their lives and it's great, I live right now. And so do we. I mean, this is the now for us. And part of what faith does, the reason we, we, we discuss this is because it ma- makes a difference in the moment where you happen to be. This is part of why I think we share stories of grace too because these aren't just like old, dry, dusty, let's get the Bible out and crack it open stories. This is like happening now. God is moving in the moment, providing in ways that we didn't expect, challenging our hearts, encouraging us, strengthening us meeting us in our time of need in the midst of sorrow as well as in joy. I mean, that's happening now. It's a real live faith. Hebrews 4 talks about that too. The word of God's living and active. It's not dead and defunct. So those who have an act, a faith, this kind of faith, know that's true. Sometimes we see God's work more clearly than others, but he's a present God. He's at work now. In the midst of everything. And so when we read these kind of passages, for me, it's not just looking back, but it's also, it's being written to a group of people who needed that in the moment because they're really living this out in real life. Sleepless nights, maybe, for one reason or another. You know, aching backs, whatever. It's now, it applies in the now, this faith. But perhaps if you've been with us, you know that the, the real push of this chapter is forward-looking. I mean, multiple times in Hebrews chapter 11, it says these people never received what was promised because they were looking forward to something that hadn't come yet. They took their last breath waiting for something that had been promised. It wasn't fully resolved. But they knew it would be coming sometime in the future. And that's the quality of faith that's being encouraged again and again and again. They 
Look at verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. In verse 40, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So there's this forward-looking aspect of faith. Are you going to get everything now? No. There's, oh, there's something yet to come. There's a resolution. But you can be assured that there, it is coming. And some of that bursts into the here and now, and we experience it, but not all of it. It is yet to come. The theologians have this already but not yet kind of way of reading even the Bible. Already Christ has come. He's brought substantial healing. There's, there's real forgiveness and real peace, but not yet is it complete and total. It's awaiting a time, a future fulfillment. So what I want you to see is that faith looks back at the past and strengthens and lives in the present, but always has a future aspect to it. So you can believe, as we've said before, the story's not over yet. I mean, God is still doing something. He's, he's putting pieces together we can't see, and we may take our final breath and be waiting for it. All these people did. Every, why are you going to be any different? I know, I know. You're very unique. I remember, you know, when I was, was a young kid, I used to think if there's one person left on the face of the planet, it's me. You have this illusion of immortality or I'm special. I mean, that's every book I read is like, ooh, you're the special one. I just kind of find out over time, really I'm not. I mean, yeah, God has made me unique, but I'm like every other human being. I'm going to die at some point, unless Christ comes back first. I'm not the chosen one. I'm just, I'm just me. And that's okay. God's given me something to do, to live in the here and now for his glory. And it's not a mistake. The where I live and what I'm called to do and who God's put in my life, these are things that have been given to me to steward well. And so what I'm called this morning, what I'm challenged by in Hebrews 11 is just this, to have an active faith that makes a difference wherever I am, period. Now, the other thing we see here is we're reminded that people of faith aren't perfect, but instead, they have faith in a perfect Savior. <laughs> Who has time to unpack all these things? Apparently, Hebrews 11 author didn't. I don't even have time to unpack all this stuff. I'm not going to presume to do the same, but I'll, I'll give a couple highlights just like he does here. In, in verse 32, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon uh, and Barak. They're the first kind of couplet there that's given. You know, these two people lived, contemporaries, at a time when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. This is the book of Judges. That's the theme there. There's no morality. Everything's been redefined. Well, there is morality. Morality is whatever you decide. You know, it's, it's fine for me. It kind of sounds contemporary, doesn't it, a little bit? It's like, I will set my own rules. Sometimes we don't like them, Ariana, rules that are imposed on us. We know ultimately they're good for us, but here's a time when it's just whatever's right in my own eyes. And Gideon, you, you may, may recall that name, just to lift one from there, living at that time, wasn't planning on 
kind of being used by God in a significant way. And that the cycle of judges is there was this kind of everybody does what's right in their own eyes and there's oppression and God raises up a judge. And these judges are all kinds of different people from different backgrounds. Gideon didn't have a military or a leadership background, but God plucks them out and says, hey, you're going to be the deliverer for my people. As a, a precursor for the true deliverer who would come because that deliverer would set everybody free once for all. But this is just kind of cyclical, going around and around and around. And, and Gideon's kind of raised up, and he's got this weak army, and he does some spectacular things. If you know that story, it's pretty remarkable. He begins, however, with pretty, a, a lot of timidity. Gideon is called by God, and he says, I need some more proof. You know, write it on the sky, basically. And God writes it on the sky. And Gideon says, you know, write it on the ground, he writes it on the ground. He's like, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to do this, right? I mean, you think that if God's any clearer, you're going to do it. But he was kind of kicking and screaming. He finally took it up, and he did what he was supposed to. And it seems like a, a great story. But the, uh, the, his story ends by collecting a bunch of wealthy items, you know, and making a beautiful, fabulous garment for himself, saying, look at me. Look how awesome I am. He has a terrible finish. And it's, it, it's mysterious to me that God is commending Gideon's, an aspect of Gideon's faith. Was he faithful throughout? No, he had a hard time. He, he didn't always believe God. And he's kind of full of himself. And yet, God says he was a person of faith. He was an imperfect person. Samson and Jephthah, in verse 32 as well, again, contemporaries, if you know the story of Samson, it's been popularized to know. Um, he breaks his Nazarite vow. It was it's a lot of things he wasn't supposed to do that he did. He was a womanizer. He got around quite a bit. He's basically the Old Testament James Bond, is, is, is Samson, if you're familiar with that story. He's commended here for his faith. And you look at him as a person, and you say, that wasn't a very good person, really. A lot of mistakes, a lot of faults. But thankfully, there's King David mentioned here, too. He's a great guy. You know, he, he, he was somebody who was a man after God's own heart, and gosh, you know the story. Committed adultery, had somebody framed for murder. I mean, he, these are felons in our society who are locked up. There's no pathway for redemption for you. And they're the ones that we... They're being commended. I mean, to, to, you look at this and you have to be reminded people of faith just aren't perfect. It's not an excuse for your imperfection, right? Oh, well, hey, here I go. Let me show you how imperfect I am. They were imperfect as well. That kind of thinking, it's stinking thinking, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing that's just not in line with what you've been called to. Paul says this as well. What shall I say then? Shall I sin so that grace can abound? You know, grace is greater if I sin greater. That's what some people think. And Paul says, no, you don't get it. In the Greek, megenoita, which is as strong as you can say, no. That's not the right way to think about it. There's a freedom that comes in the gospel that frees you to walk in God's ways. That's where real freedom is. So it's not dismissive of sin, but it's saying that there's no sin so great that you can be separated from God. There just isn't. I'm sorry. I mean, the, the only sin, is, as I read it, is a flatly denying God that separ separates you from him. And David was a man after God's own heart because of his response to sin. 
He wouldn't tell any of you to sign up for that. I guarantee it. I just know he wouldn't. Because it was so, he was so broken. It was so much shrapnel that came from that. But here it is. I mean, you put your nose in the scripture and you look. We could talk about all these people. Jephthah, he was kind of rash in the way that he approached things, you know, made sort of a rash vow that he had to, and it was put him in a terrible mind. You could read all these people and they're being commended for their faith. It's not their faith in and of itself that's being commended ultimately, but the faith that drives them to the one who does everything right, the Savior. I mean, this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at again and again. Right before this, he's talking about Christ. He's the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest. For people who are living faith as best they can, but are still going to be imperfect. So be encouraged, be challenged, be strengthened, and be pointed to the Savior. Because this chapter exalts the God of their faith more than their faith itself. And that's where we have to end up, or else we're going to put people on a pedestal, right? And they'll fail us. This happens in contemporary leadership circles, and certainly in the Christian world all the time. You know, just catapult up to people, and then they just fail. And then if your faith is in them, what is your faith based on? I mean, I have a, a, a friend who's kind of been wrestling for some time, and I think that's the heart of it, too, looking around and seeing people who say they follow this who never quite live up to the expectations. They're not going to. In one way or another, some more obvious than others. Because it's not about them, it's about the one they're following, ultimately. And I know, at the same time, there's a challenge to us to say, are we the ones who are the stumbling blocks in this? Are we giving people reasons to say, you know, that Savior must not be that great (laughs) if this is what comes about of it? But at the end of the day, it's still about him. Now, final thing just to consider is that God's assessment of them mattered more than man's. This verse here in 38 just has struck me for so many years. The world was not worthy of them. I remember getting elementary report cards. It was before we had grades. They had N and S. S was satisfactory and N was not satisfactory. And I, I didn't like getting N's. You know, I didn't get too many, but it really bothered me when I got not satisfied. And I don't know if teachers had a quota, like they have to find something they're not satisfied with or whatever, and they, they occasionally did. I couldn't stand that because I wanted to have an S. I wanted the S, you know. I'm satisfactory <laughs> in every single possible way. Practically perfect, kind of a, that type thing. I, I, but what, their assessment of me mattered. I wanted those positive inputs from them as well. These people, apparently, by the world, the world was assessing them, and they said, you're a giant N, not satisfactory on every single level. The, the judgment the world on them was, you're somebody to be persecuted. You're somebody to be rejected. I mean, this list here is almost mind-boggling. They were tortured. They faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment put to death by stoning, sawed in two. That's not a magic trick where they got put back together. Sawed in two was gruesome. Killed by the sword, wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Come to Jesus, right? This is the moment. You say, come on, everybody. This is what you're signing up for. And we know we're a little bit removed from that in our society, but here it is. This is what it looks like to be a person of faith in some of these 
times and some of them still now today in certain places, this is still going on. But they didn't care. Because what mattered to them was am I living well for God? That, his assessment of them is what mattered most. I mean, it says some, they, they did this in verse 35 so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Kind of a mysterious fa- phrase, but they're looking forward to the future when God says, hey, you lived well for my glory. They're looking ahead. That what they're, how they're living now, the things they're suffering now, on a relative scale, don't matter because it's not the world's assessment of them at the end of the day. It's God's assessment that is really what they're living for. They're focused on pleasing God. Remember verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. More than pleasing man ultimately. That's a theme that we see picked up on in other places in the Bible too. I mean, Paul says in Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Christ. He says, here's how you live your life. You're trying to live a life of faith. This is your mentality. I want to conduct myself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That's my goal in all of these situations. That same word, worthy. The world wasn't worthy of them. There was a different assessment. God is saying, they're worth, they're my precious possession. Even if the world says no, they're not. Objects of scorn. And part of why they could do that. It's because they had the same heartbeat, it seems, that Paul did ultimately. I want to live life worthy of the gospel. I want to do things in a way that are honoring to God. About a month ago, I heard um, Tim Keller, I know I reference him from time to time, in San Francisco, you know, they have these kind of cities will get people together and say, let's reach this city for Christ. And that's kind of what was happening in San Francisco. Um, every city needs the gospel. Everybody, every city needs to know that Jesus is all across the world. So Keller was one of the featured talker, uh, speakers, and he was looking back on, you know, the, the, the early church when there was this kind of stir. And, of course, there was a lot of imperfection there. We, we do glamorize the early church, read 1 Corinthians, and you'll figure out it wasn't so great after all. But there were a lot of good things happening at that time as well because they were extremely countercultural in some respects. So he said, if you want to reach San Francisco, it's not going to happen unless, you know, evangelism, sharing the good news with Christ. He said, but evangelism is not just saying things. He said, if you look at the New Testament church in the beginning, there were some distinctive characteristics that culturally set them apart that did lend, make people say, hey, what's, what's going on there? And so his challenge to all these influencers in San Francisco, these thousands of people, was just to consider what that might mean as you conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's my application of that, but just to put some, some teeth to this as well. His claim was that the pathway to evangelism, to sharing this gospel with others really is all about your character more than anything else your character is going to be the strongest influence and this is kind of why i'm tying this in is because it's it's who you are where you are now over the long haul that ultimately is going to make a huge difference for the kingdom and just to tease this out a little bit he said in the early church that they were known for integrity they were honest Think about your workplaces. Think about your school room. Think about your, your neighborhood. 
If you really want to impact the place for Christ, be honest. Have fair dealings. Be transparent with people. These are still probably fairly countercultural realities. Um, not just integrity, but generosity. This early church was known, even in the employment sector, for fair pricing, for fair pay. And in some cases, according to him, they took less salary so that their workers were treated well. Your hiring practices in your position of influence make a difference. Maybe perhaps the difference. Hospitality, opening up homes and living spaces and your possessions, sharing them freely, very countercultural. Something that shook the first century place and Greece and Rome and other areas as well. Sympathy, not being ruthless in relationships or in business, but forgiving. You know, when somebody says or does something offensive, do you have a forgiving heart towards them? These are qualities, character qualities of what it looks like. Let's say live a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, here's some things for consideration. One of the big things in the culture that day was chastity, a completely new sexual ethic. This idea of a, a monogamous commitment, something shared, the physical intimacy shared between a husband and wife, that was a pretty new concept, pretty radical at the time. And that ethic made the Christian community distinctive. There needs to be a covenant, not giving the body without giving of a whole life. The way they handled adversity, when hard things come to life, how do you handle it? What's your response to it? Emotionally, but even like, what are you doing with that? And, and so for this early church, people looking said, <clears throat> they're responding differently than I would to that. If you're not different than your neighbors, there's no ratty pathway to evangelism. You look the same as everybody else. It's so different. One of the reasons I think Hebrews is being written is because we can't be the same. We're, we have a different value system. We've got everything driving us. One of the challenges, of course, one of the things the gospel will do if it's really at work is kind of show us where we're blind to these things, where we've started behaving and believing more like the world around us instead of like the gospel. It's my contention that you know, the gospel will look at every single culture even the Mason, and we'll applaud some of it. Good job. You're doing a great job. And they'll look at every culture and critique some things, saying, you've got some serious blind spots here. You're a very greedy people. You love your private property, and you're going to protect it no matter what. Not willing to share. Not willing to be open-handed. And you've hidden it behind economic theories, political posturing. I don't know. What do you think the gospel's saying to our culture? I mean, most of us just want to think all it says is like, hey, good job, you've arrived. If we could only take this moment in history and solidify it and crystallize it and, and just make it a fossil and everybody looks like us all the time, this is the kingdom of God. We've got it figured out. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity speaks about that too. If there ever were a perfect society, he said, everybody would come to it and find parts about it they don't like. I mean, that's just... This is the looking ahead aspect of it. And that's not just me, that's Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, there's a kingdom you are going to receive. It isn't here yet. 
And we're living out the best that we can in the, in the meantime, of course. But we need to, we need to let the gospel convict us and, and challenge us, even ourselves, and say, are we living these things out? It's not just a list of words, but how am I being generous? How am I being hospitable? How am I sympathizing with people? Am I being chaste? I mean, the, the contention he makes is that this is the pathway to the gospel really flourishing. And the final thing he adds, which I think is great, is friendship. This isn't friendship evangelism. That is, making a friend with somebody so that I can share the gospel. It's just friendship. Because if you're a good friend, you're going to be there for people over the long haul. Not just because of what they can give you, but because they've been made in God's image and God's drawn you in proximity to be their friend. And that's going to open up ultimately doors. So, are you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel? It's not, of course, so that we can earn God's approval in the sense of, yeah, you're in, you've done enough, I've been keeping track of how many good things you've done, and you're finally in the kingdom. That's not, not the right way to think about it. I mean, Jesus is the only perfect substitute, but once we embrace that reality, our hearts are certain. We say, how can I live for this one who has called me to relationship with him? At the end of your life, when you look back, what measurements are you going to use to say that was a good life? Or what's going to be said at your eulogy? I mean, in a sense, this reads a little bit like a eulogy. They're just brief snippets of people's lives. If you go to a funeral, typically we tend to, to, to think about somebody's life positively speaking, even if they were terrible people. You're looking for something good. <laughs> I've been to them before. Where it's like, well, there's a couple good things about this person. We're not going to talk about the bad things. But the ones typically that are great, and people live great lives, are still highlights. They still wrestled and they still struggled with things. They're snapshots, though, of a collective whole. And what are people going to say about you? And what will they say about your influence? What will they say about your character? What will they say about the fundamental message of your life? What would they say about the things that mattered most to you? And those are important questions to consider. But here the question is, what will God say? And what seems to matter most to him is, did he have faith? Was he a person of faith? Because it wasn't about how great these people were in terms of living their lives. They all struggled. We've, we've labored to show you that. But they had faith. They trusted God. They believed him. They had ups and downs in lives, but they ultimately they said, I trust you, God. And that's what's being pressed on us by this entire chapter. These examples are designed to encourage us toward growth in faith. Ordinary people, they struggled quite a bit. And so did the disciples, even the ones walking with Jesus. It's not just because Jesus isn't here in the flesh. They still struggled too. In fact, they say in Luke 17, 5, when Jesus tells them something pretty challenging, like, you know, be forgiving, like this list of things. And they say, increase our faith, because guess what? We can't do it. I can't keep forgiving these people. My mind doesn't work with that economy. And, and, and so they say, increase our faith. That's my prayer, that we would have that as well. Or there's the man whose son is convulsing, and uh, it, it's just had these terrible struggles and physical complications and, and the father um, says to Jesus if you can do anything take pity on us and help us and Jesus says to the father if you can everything's possible for him who believes and then the father says I do believe help me overcome my unbelief 
And that's the space I think we need to live in with Hebrews 11. Is I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that's the profession of faith is I do believe. And then we realize, man, we are we're in process. There's a lot of areas in my life where I'm, I'm not looking like I believe. And the heart that God's looking for is the one that says, you recognize that. That seems to be the pathway to growth. Ours is to believe in the most, on that basis, to move forward with God as our guide. But all of Hebrews 11 is pressing us to Hebrews chapter 12, and this is where we close. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's why Hebrews 11's here. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on I know some of you are weary, maybe physically, definitely emotionally, and quite possibly spiritually. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He began your faith. He's going to finish that faith. Consider him so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Father, I do pray today. It's interesting that Hebrews 12, 28 reference I made about this, receiving this kingdom. It says, we're going to receive a kingdom, so give thanks on the hills of thanksgiving. We can look forward to that. And there may be a quality of our faith right now that just looks ahead and sees nothing, hopelessness. Today, would you kind of peel it back just like these saints of old, so that we can get a glimpse, even if things seem hopeless and we just don't want to go on, there is something coming. And you're going to make good on those promises. We might need a refresher on that. And maybe, maybe today we just need to say, I don't understand this now. I don't get it now. I, I'm having a hard time living this life now. I don't see it. Would Jesus, would you come to us and minister to our hearts in the, in the present moment and Give us an opportunity to look back as well and say, hey, look, sometimes we can't see you now. We don't believe anything's happening in the future, but we look back and we see, wow, look at what you've done. Give us that glimpse as well, even if it's just from Hebrews 11, to be able to say, look at a faithful God who has shown up again and again in the course of history and quite possibly in my life as well. So give us strength, Father. We don't want to grow weary. We don't want to lose heart. Encourage and strengthen us today with these stories of faith of those who've gone before and make us, too, instruments of your grace in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, reflect on that message for sure. We're going to have a little time of response and reflection for these kids who are going to come back on in. They're going to share with you what they've, come on in kids, if you can hear me. Somebody needs to go open up the doors and let the rugrats come on back in. So yeah, take a moment to, to listen to the kids around you as they share and reflect as well in your own heart what God's doing, how he's stirring things up. And then we will sing the, uh, the doxology. Uh, glory be to God.